Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Paul Rodden. Did I pronounce that right? You did, as a matter of fact. Most people That's get it great. wrong. You I probably it. got it wrong the first time. For those longtime listeners, Paul is a repeat guest on the show. We're recording here at NAEP, the NAEP Expo. That stands for North American Patrol Prospect Expo. <laughs> so, I would have had that is, wrong too. It's okay. Yeah, I thought it was this petroleum. Is, this is your first time here. This is my second time here, I think. So, I w- I've been here once before, long before the uh, collapse. Okay, okay. Yeah, so it's yeah. been a while. Yeah, same for me. It has been... It has been quite a few years since I was here. It's good so, to be back. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun. It's exciting. This is a, a few times I get to record live and very rarely at conferences. So this is, this is enjoyable for me. Yeah, me too. Um, again, it's, it's great to be here at NAEP. Uh, I'm here actually with WSB looking at some GIS work with different uh, upstream and maybe even some midstream operators, energy transition, renewables. Uh, I think it, this is the second year they've got a renewables pavilion. Mm-hmm. That's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's right down there. It's almost like we're, we're like part of the renewables pavilion. Don't tell OGGN that, but <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I don't know what it means. <laughs> so anyways, anyways, um, that's exciting that, that you're here with WSB. I I don't remember if we really talked about WSB last time. So for the audience who may not have heard the last podcast with you on it, can you give us a little bit of your background, Paul, and a little bit of background to WSB and kind of what what y'all do? Yeah, so but some of my background is uh, just a hodgepodge of different GIS stuff. Um, I've got about 22 years or so in GIS, just background. So... Uh, I'm a lot older than I look, um, but it's been, you know, GIS, is, I've worked with municipal governments, oil and gas, I've been in investment banking, uh, data services, basically you name it, I've, I've been in it. Now I'm uh, consulting with WSB, working with municipal governments, state and county governments, and uh, oil and gas clients, both midstream and upstream. And that's really what... Uh, I'm doing here at NAEP is spreading the, the WSB word, which is a, uh, they're a company originally based out of Minneapolis and are spreading through Texas, uh, developing new, new, uh, a new client base. And so uh, we've, we've been pretty successful so far, signing on some new oil and gas clients and looking to build that out even further today. Very cool. And I think it's, it's appropriate to have you on here. And I think what, what prompted this was you sent me a a article that was a recent 
a recent announcement that was made and you just had some questions on it. And I think it's interesting, we can get into a little bit more about the WSB and what I think is so important about GIS, co-location and, and how that all goes into the energy transition, which I think we'll, we'll dive into a little bit with these questions. But the, the article you sent me, remind me what it was and, and yeah, so, well, the reason I came across it is, uh, for, for your listeners, I have another podcast, it's the Hydrogen Podcast, and I recently covered um, plug power exiting the, the Fortescue deal in Australia. Mm-hmm. And right after that, uh, they had another announcement with Fortescue and Baker Hughes leveraging some geothermal opportunities, again, to make ammonia, some green ammonia, green hydrogen, but on the uh, geothermal side, and I know that's really your sweet spot. And I wanted to talk to you more specifically about that project, how it's being developed, what are the opportunities there. But also, uh, after, after covering one other uh, geothermal green hydrogen project, I got a, uh, a, a series of emails from uh, listeners asking about, you know, with, with the green hydrogen talk and how that's getting built out, so much seems to be, you know, when there's excess supply or surplus being pr- used from wind and solar, that's not going to be really the case with geothermal. And it seems to be maybe even a, a much better solution, much more elegant solution in developing uh, green hydrogen. So I guess it's kind of a double question. What are your thoughts on the Baker Hughes and FFI deal? But in a more broader sense, uh, your thoughts on leveraging that continual source of energy from geothermal on the green hydrogen side? Yeah, that is, that's a great question. I saw that announcement. I guess they made that announcement at the Baker Hughes annual conference, which, I think so. which is exciting. And I think, I think it's fascinating. One of the things I love about FFI, they are very proactive in, in trying to find ways to reduce their carbon footprint and make their all of their operations cleaner and I think don't quote me on this I think they're one of the first ones to say we want to develop a green steel industry and a green steel supply chain if not if they're not the first and they're one of the first probably the first in Australia yes yeah and that's that kind of goes into having hydrogen to fuel your supply chain and the transport right goes into big announcements that they made about having gigawatts of solar and wind up in the Pilbara where the mines are to to power their entire operations and then getting into geothermal as that base load. They've got a geothermal team who is exploring for geothermal prospects to also fuel future mine opportunities. And that was a that was part of that announcement that they said one area that that they have an active MOU signed for Fortescue to develop a geothermal prospect. But getting to your question on that, <laughs> how does geothermal and hydrogen mix, and specifically for a mining company, right. I think that is exactly what you're saying, that with the geothermal, you've got all of this power, but it's in a single location. You can't really move the geothermal. And depending on how big your mine is or depending on how big your your demand is for that power, you may not be able to fully utilize it. Right. So the idea of then converting that into hydrogen, you've now taken what is a 
what is more of a concrete single point energy source and you've turned it into a commodity that can now be utilized for for transportation and start decarbonizing more of the entire supply chain as opposed to just the scope one energy production. So it's kind of very similar to like a, a nuclear application, but without the headache of radioactive materials. Yep, yep, absolutely. And I think this goes into that that second part of what you're asking, and I, I'll, I'll flip this on you a little bit, <laughs> with um, when you're talking about hydrogen production, and, and specifically here, I guess we're focused on green hydrogen production, utilizing excess renewable energy right. to produce hydrogen. If you've got a, a solar or wind farm and you have excess, a, a paper I just wrote was looking at estimates for offshore wind, anywhere from 5% in the US as we build out up to 10 or 20% at peak times in offshore UK. If you're taking that excess and just turning that into hydrogen, I think you've got several different problems. You've got you've got to build your electrolyzers and you have to build the storage associated with that. And you have to figure out the scale of how do you produce the hydrogen? How do you basically maximize your value of this produced hydrogen? Because really what you're doing there is you're turning the hydrogen into a storage mechanism for all the right. excess power. So with, with that, when we're talking about things like electrolyzers or or storage or all of the different components in the hydrogen supply chain. I guess from your perspective and everybody you've interviewed, what is the most, what would you think is the most economic way to, to make green hydrogen? Well, one of the things that I, I'll be honest with you, I, I hate colors, the colors of hydrogen. <laughs> I think that's I think people are going to get away from that, hopefully sooner than later. And it all, it, it, everything's going to boil down to carbon intensity load. One of the reasons why I do like geothermal is I think on a full carbon intensity scale, soup to nuts, start to finish, you know, uh, solar and wind have their own drawbacks from the materials that have to be uh, mined, refined, shipped, developed versus geothermal, I think it's a much more elegant solution. Mm -hmm. and a much more, uh, a much lower full cycle carbon intensity prospect. Um, as far as economics, I think geothermal would uh, provide a, a much better economic case. Uh, I mean, obviously we know steam methane reforming is the cheapest. Mm -hmm. There are some other applications like uh, in situ combustion for hydrogen development is extremely cheap, but it's uh, a little bit more niche on how it can be uh, uh, implemented. Um, and when you're talking about green hydrogen development, uh, when you think about, uh, like say the, uh, the, the plant in Nevada that's gonna be supplying all the electricity to LA, yep. all of that infrastructure is already built out where you can uh, mm. pipe that electricity somewhere else to make the hydrogen. Okay. So the biggest problem eventually gets to be, how do you get the electricity from where it's being generated to where you're producing the hydrogen? Is it cheaper to run that through copper and then produce it somewhere else, or is it cheaper to produce the hydrogen on site and then set up pipeline to yeah. transport the hydrogen off site? So the economics really boil down to, one, your, your electricity cost, 
at, at the site, how much are you actually generating the, electri the electricity for? And then two, your transportation costs to where it's, wherever it's going to be utilized. Yeah. And I think that's going to be extremely geographically dependent, which is one of the reasons why I do uh, kind of nerd out on location analytics, getting into hydrogen now before it's too late and it has to ramp up like oil and gas did. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's all really interesting things. And I, I guess to, uh, to paraphrase it a little bit, it sounds like the answer to what is the cheapest hydrogen is it depends. It, it, that's always the best political answer. Yeah. Is, well, it depends. So you can say, well, it, if, if you're generating it in Midland, right, or Central Texas, where you have just thousands and thousands of, of uh, wind turbines, you can generate it pretty cheap there. But I don't know what the, what the setup costs are for a geothermal, and that's, you can help me out. What does it yeah. actually cost to set up an on-site geothermal plant? Yeah. And compare that and contrast that to how much a solar and wind farm cost. Yeah. Um, I would say now that probably the cheapest is going to be wind, just because there's so much available and the economies of scale are dropping wind farms so much. But it's still expensive. I mean, we're still talking $6 a kilogram to develop. And then if you want to bring in the IRA and knock $3 off that, it becomes relatively economical. Yeah. 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 So I think it, it is a, I think it's a morphing question. And I think it's always going to be, mul there will be multiple different ideas and ways that you have to look at that. Yeah. But I think one of the points that you made that I really like that, that I think is the case for almost all developments is that you need to talk about your location and your supply chain and, and basically trying to, what you can best do to co-locate resources and yeah. opportunities. Now there's one, one article that I wanted to bring up there recently, I think this week, two days ago, as a matter of fact, there was an announcement that GM is partnering with Lithium Americas to develop Nevada's Thacker, Nevada's Thacker Pass mine. <laughs> yeah. So this is a lithium mine, a very great world-class kind of resource. And, and I find it interesting because you see the end user, the buyer of the lithium, that being GM, to develop lithium ion batteries going directly to a mine saying yeah. we want to just buy the raw material from you right away. So my question there is, as you, you're thinking about geospatial analytics, co-locating resources, and, and in the, the hydrogen space, we've talked here about getting energy back and forth. I guess the, the roundabout way is, do you see this same kind of scenario? Do you see this happening in the hydrogen economy where you've got end users that are trying to produce and develop the hydrogen and then immediately selling it to like a car manufacturer for yeah. their hydrogen powered car? <coughs> well, that's a good question. One of the things that uh, the hydrogen industry economy talk about is if it is going into transportation, which I believe it will, um, the, the first spot to, to focus on is heavy-duty transport, so trucking, class 8 vehicles, and you are starting to see a lot of those collaborations. Uh, a big one is Raven SR and uh, Hyzon. 
the they're they're partnering up on on a several different projects where they'll be producing the hydrogen and uh, Hyzon takes it immediately off their hands for their shipping needs. Nikola has partnered up with Plug Power to basically do the exact same thing. But uh, Nikola, it's interesting, they're actually going much more vertically integrated on their systems. So uh, even more to your point, where they're seeking out uh, hydrogen development prospects, bringing those kind of, not necessarily in-house, but under the Nikola umbrella and setting up some very strong partnerships between those two companies. Personally, I think that full lithium battery power vehicles are going to be kind of a blip on the radar. I don't think there's a big run in the long term on that just because we don't have the energy infrastructure to power 300 million vehicles in the U.S. all running off of batteries. I think that uh, there's actually, a, uh, I can't remember the name of the company right now, but there's a, like a supercar manufacturer that's developing a, a, a hydrogen car. But they're they're bringing lithium batteries to play a role in that. So oh, okay. you know the the hydrogen powers the lithium on site, so you have instant power, and it's a real elegant solution to uh, not needing so much lithium for transportation, but also bringing in hydrogen fuel cells into that. Um, I, I believe we're also going to start seeing some vertically integrated solutions, maybe with Toyota oh. or uh, uh, Hyundai, the South Korean. Uh, Groups, automakers are really into hydrogen also. Toyota is, obviously. And I'm really just waiting to see what uh, the U.S. auto manufacturers, if and when they take on that, yeah. that model also. Yeah, and it seems like right now they are more focused on lithium, as you can see by something like this and, and electric vehicles. But I agree that I think, to your point, it's, it is possible to do a cross-country road trip in a electric vehicle but i think it when you're talking about energy density and convenience and what that road trip looks like there will ultimately be people who want to drive straight through and only make bathroom breaks and gas breaks right and then there will be the people who want to drive four hours take a 30 minute break drive another four hours maybe take a, a, a two or three hour break there will be the people who make the road trip the exciting part yeah. and there's others that just do it to do it or you're like me and you're stuck with three kids all under seven <laughs> years old that they just can't take a yeah. five minute break they yeah. have to run around and get the energy out otherwise they drive me and my wife insane yeah absolutely well i did you have any other questions for me that you wanted to ask or did i not answer your questions at all um you know just to just unpack that a little bit more what what do you think about uh, geothermal powering hydrogen. I mean, do you, do you see that as, I, I've said it a couple of times, a more elegant solution than using wind and solar? How, you know, how dense is that geothermal opportunity in the U.S. Yeah. and in, uh, globally? Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry. So I would say yes. I do think geothermal is is a beautiful, elegant solution. I think my understanding, and when it comes to something like a geothermal power plant, the more you can run it, the better. Because it is expensive upfront equipment that you want to get your, your money back. You want to generate as much power as possible, as quickly as possible, so that you fully utilize what you've just invested in. 
And when we talk about something like geothermal as a stranded resource, that is that is a a stranded resource. Yeah. Very much like there's oil and gas prospects that you're never going to have a pipeline built to. Right. And maybe you can truck it out, but ultimately there's a there's a law of diminishing returns on that. And I think that when we talk about geothermal, because it's because that is energy, electricity you're generating, you either have to build your transmission lines, which could be to the middle of nowhere. Right. Which is actually going back to Fortescue, there were in Australia there are geothermal prospects that are in the middle of the country where there's nothing. And the problem is you've got five megawatts there, or maybe even fifty megawatts. But ultimately, it is just too cost prohibitive to build the transmission line. Although there are roads there, which is an opportunity for something like hydrogen, where you can now take that electricity, commoditize it, put it into a truck, and truck it out. Yeah. And that makes it that makes it something that you can now utilize that resource. And I see those resources. That's something that has been talked about for the the island of Nevis. Yeah which is another very beautiful, great place. They have a grid size right now of about five megawatts. And, and don't quote me on these numbers. I think it's five megawatts that they have currently used. That's their demand. But they have a geothermal resource that is estimated anywhere from 15 to 30 megawatts. So who are you going to get to develop that prospect and only put in five megawatts. Right. That's the problem is that nobody wants to make that development because they don't see the value there. Right. And hydrogen could be that value, especially when you start talking about shipping lanes, long haul transport lanes, where you are already on right. on that transportation route. And now you can be, for lack of a better term, a gas station yeah. for these long haul trucking opportunities to now decarbonize. I think that's a great, great point. You know, I think hydrogen is is primed and ready to be that uh, uh, just something to completely disrupt the the global power uh, supply. Yeah. You know, countries that were just struggling so much to bring in. Uh, electricity or energy can now be an, an exporter of yeah. hydrogen and just gener- start generating their own revenue past maybe tourism or anything else like that where it could be cyclical. Now they have a real opportunity on their hands. And geothermal, yep. I think, is going to be a, a big provider of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are, we are running up. We've got, we've got a whole slew of podcasts that we are going to be recording here at NAPE. Not just the Energy Transition podcast, but other ones. I think we have a launch of, of some exciting podcasts as well coming up soon. So, Paul, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Um, no, uh, everyone, take a listen to the Hydrogen Podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, you can always email me at info at thehydrogenpodcast.com. And I'm pretty sure you all are sponsored by Caterpillar. They're a big... Uh, favorite of mine when it comes to hydrogen generation. That is that is great. Thank you for that. Thank you everybody for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. As you pointed out, Caterpillar, a big thank you to Caterpillar, a big thank you to NAPE. NAPE, where deals happen. 
for the podcast pavilion where this episode was recorded. Caterpillar Oil & Gas can help build the future of energy with power and less harm. Bringing experts together to deliver the right outcome, we can help configure, implement, and optimize the right power solutions that the world is demanding. Simply put, <laughs> Caterpillar Oil & Gas has what tomorrow takes. So thank you, everyone. Um, Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Remember, keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.